You are listening to the Wealth Without Bay Street podcast, a Canadian guide to building dependable wealth. Join your hosts, Richard Canfield and Jason Lowe, as they unlock the secrets to creating financial peace of mind in an uncertain world. Discover the strategies and mindsets to a financial future that you can bank on. Okay. All right. Welcome to another episode of Wealth Without Bay Street. And I'm your host, Jason Lowe. And and we've got Richard Canfield here and joining us today uh, on the Zoom, uh, our, our friend, the, the amazing, uh, one of the smartest guys I know, uh, Bob Murphy. Bob is the host of numerous podcasts. He has, of course, the Bob Murphy podcast, a phenomenal show. I would encourage everyone to check out. Um, he is also co-hosting with uh, Carlos Lara on the Lara Murphy uh, show, which is lara-murphy.com. You can access everything there. Um, Bob is uh, the author of and co-author of numerous works, including uh, The Case for IBC, uh, How Privatized Banking Really Works, and Bob is the co-director of the Nelson Nash Institute, and we are so stoked and excited to have you with us today, Bob. Glad to be here. Well, where should we begin? I think one of the things that we wanted to invite Bob to share was... um, the book, The Case for IBC. So we would we would recommend to all of our listeners, this is a book that you should absolutely add to your library. Uh, it's, it's a terrific read. And we wanted to know, Bob, if you could share with us the inspiration in co-authoring the book with uh, Carlos Lara and uh, with the late R. Nelson Nash. And so maybe share with listeners, what was the inspiration for writing The Case for IBC? Sure thing. Um, so as you guys certainly know, and I'm presumably your listeners as well, Nelson wrote uh, Becoming Your Own Banker, which you know introduced the world to the concept of IBC, the infinite banking concept. And Carlos Lara was the person who had introduced me to Nelson's ideas. And it took me a bit, but I finally realized, oh yeah, this makes sense. I, I was a professional economist. And so I, it took me a bit to sort of translate what Nelson was saying into my framework. But once I did, I realized, yeah, this just checks out to me. And I, you know, became an IBC uh, person myself. And then, and Carlos had shown me that what Nelson's ideas implied and what I was doing with the so-called Austrian school economists, because we were going around the country giving talks about the Federal Reserve at the time, you know, QE and all that stuff. And we were very concerned about the future. And Carlos showed me that, look at everybody who implements IBC is helping contain this problem that you Austrians are talking about. And so that's what made Carlos and me uh, decide to, to write our own book, How Privatized Banking Really Works. And then mm-hmm. we started going around with Nelson and doing a s- seminar for the general public on IBC, it's sort of like a crash course. Even if you have no prior knowledge, come on to this seminar that we're doing at you know the local hotel or whatever. And it was like, it, it, it varied, it evolved over time, but it, was, it ended up being about four hours long with a lunch break. And so we would just give a, a you know, crash course. I would give an outline of the economy and what the Fed was doing, how to read life insurance illustrations. Nelson, of course, would explain what does it mean to become your own banker? How did he discover IBC? Carlos would give his input in terms of a business owner managing cash flows and so forth and various legislative uh, milestones involved in you know, the financial sector and, and what happened with the tax treatment of whole life policies, all things like that. And at one point I realized probably like a year and a half after we had been taking this show on the road and going around, I was like, guys, you know, there's a lot that we present in the seminar for the public 
that's not in any of our writings. You know, it's stuff that we kind of developed and refined over time based on, you know, reactions from crowds and, and things like realizing like what some of the misconceptions were, things like that. And in particular, like I had a whole series of objections to IBC, you know, like, this is too good to be true. And then I went through a bullet point and, you know, I had five or six objections that I dealt with. And a lot of people were saying, oh, wow, until you put it that way, Bob, you know, I knew what Nelson's point was, but, you know, my buddy in the water cooler was telling me these objections. And then when you just said that, duh, it finally hit me. Right. So I, so that's, that's what the case for IBC was. It was basically codifying the, the, the presentation, the live presentation we had been giving to the public for, I think, like a year and a half, two years or so at that point. Because I realized we're, we're saying a lot of stuff in these seminars that isn't written down anywhere. So why don't we go ahead and put this in book form? It's such a great read. Uh, we can't, uh, we can't recommend the book enough. And I, I mean, I appreciate that, but I should also stress too, that it's, it's not intended to replace becoming your own banker. Oh it, yeah, of course. Yeah. And hand in hand and in tandem though, it, it's a, it's like the, it's like the, as Jason Rink said on one of our pockets, it's the one, two punch <laughs> for your education process on yeah. IBC. <laughs> yeah, completely. And what, what I guess are some of the key messages that you want readers to, to take away from the book, Bob? Okay, sure. So like I said, since it's not intended as a replacement for Nelson's book, I'll mention things that, you know, we, I made sure ended up in the case for IBC that would supplement things that might not have, you know, um, been, been spelled out as uh, precisely in Nelson's book or that some readers were confused after still having read Nelson. So one thing is we were like, for, we have a whole series of objections, you know, Hey, I thought you're supposed to buy term and invest the difference. You know, isn't that the standard left? So I went through and, you know, cause I handled that part. And just explain so real briefly for your audience, um, you know, that those there's glib. So let me back up a second. It's not the case that I'm saying no one should ever buy a term policy. There's plenty of cases. I mean, I have term insurance, but, you know, from when I was younger and, you know, it still makes sense to keep that thing in force while that particular policy is still going. Um, but the people who are trying to convince their listeners that getting up, permanent life insurance policy, which would include the kind that Nelson recommends for IBC, that that's just the no, like that's so stupid. Who would possibly do that? And they have these quick glib demonstrations showing that, oh yeah, the money you would save if you instead get a term policy of the same death benefit, just put that in a mutual fund or something. And then over time, that's going to grow more than the internal rate of return on your whole life policy's cash value. So it is an investment vehicle is better. And if you happen to die, well then, you know, you get the death benefit. So your, your death coverage is the same. So in their mind, they think they've covered both bases and, you know, o only a shyster could possibly want you to do this. this you know. Again, they weren't just narrowly focusing on IBC, but just in general, people pushing life insurance, you know, that has an accumulating cash value component to it. So what I did is just, just go through and show all the different ways that those comparisons that seem to be head to head are actually not head to head at all. They're apples to oranges. And so that doesn't prove that it's a good idea to buy, you know, a whole life policy, but it does show you really shouldn't be taking advice on this issue for people who don't know what they're talking about. So right. just real quickly, some of the differences, the standard demonstrations when they show, you know, the same death benefit coverage, it's for a term policy that eventually expires, whether it's a 20 year or a 30 year term policy, whereas as the name suggests, a whole life policy is in force for your whole life. So obviously one huge difference between you know person A who takes the one bit of advice and person B who takes the other is that once the term policy expires, the person who you know was investing the difference in the mutual fund 
yeah, now they have a nice little mutual fund with a decent balance sitting there, but they have no life insurance because now they, they could have developed a condition in, in the interim and literally are uninsurable or just because they're 30 years older, now the term policy rates are much higher, even if they're in perfect health. And maybe at some point they might say, you know, this is kind of crazy. I'm just going to let that lapse. Right. And so, or not lapse, but, you know, not, not roll it over for a new policy. So you know, that right there shows these are not the same thing. And so, so, yeah, if you die during the term of that term policy and get the death benefit, then, okay, you could plausibly argue it's the same thing. But clearly, once that expires, no, it's, it's totally different animals. Another huge difference is when they're trying to show that, oh, yeah, just put your money in a mutual fund and look at the historical returns. That's going to kill what you're going to earn, you know, in your cash value of your permit. Well, they're typically looking at the mutual fund that is heavily exposed to, to equity markets. Right. And so... I mean, what that reduces to saying is if you put your money in the stock market, the mean rate of return over a 20 year period is probably higher than what you're going to earn in, you know, fixed income. And yeah, that's a true statement, but that doesn't mean you're stupid if you buy bonds and, you know, only, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, obviously, because there's a difference in risk and volatility that of the, course. the rate of return on, you know, fixed income is much more dependable. And of course, in a whole life policy, the cash value, you know, it once, it goes up. It doesn't go down. You know, your, your 401k or yeah, I know you guys don't have 401ks, but you, your retirement vehicle that's invested in the stock market or, you know, heavily exposed to it, it can go up and down. I mean, as this last, last week just demonstrates as we're recording here, we have the worst week, uh, at least in the United States markets since uh, 2008. So again, it, so that doesn't prove that the one is better than the other, but these glib comparisons to say, oh, you make more money this way and you got the same death benefit. Those are clearly just false statements and it's alarming that people with such reputations are able to apparently make these demonstrations and get away with it. Well, the, the one thing that Nelson uh, added to what you were describing here, Bob, in his book, Becoming Your Own Banker, is he, he really helped us to understand that this is a process. It's not a product. And the, the process of becoming your own banker is not about addressing the yield of an investment or a function of rates. It's all about how you finance the things that you need throughout your lifetime, which, which can certainly include investments. Right. But I see the comparison, and you do too, Bob, and, and Richard as well. So often in discussion, when someone is first exposed to the process with, with the abundance of information that's out there on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, on social media in general, the conversation so quickly leans into product because we believe that that is the conversation that's going on in the prospect's mind that somehow they're so focused on the product and comparing it to every other product that's out there. And it just doesn't matter if you don't understand that you have a problem, which is that you're not in control of the banking function as it relates to your needs. And when, when you look out there, Bob, at the information that's being communicated to people about this concept of becoming your own banker, the infinite banking concept. What are some things that you're seeing out there that are just incorrect aside from the, the comparisons of, well, you should buy term and invest the difference, or you should have a whole life policy. No conversation whatsoever about the process of becoming your own banker. It's all about product comparison or the control of liquidity and capital accessibility. It doesn't enter the conversation either. Yeah. Because we're seeing some things that are really frustrating from the, the vantage point of 
wanting to make sure that this message is being communicated properly to the general public. And that gave rise to the Nelson Nash Institute, which we're going to have Bob expand on. But before we do that, Bob, like what are some things that you're seeing, the information out there that's just incorrect? I, I, w I do want to come back to that. That's a great question. Let me just connect with what you're saying with the process versus, you know, the, the product. Another example of that and something that we cover in the case for IBC is I'll have a lot of people who, because of my warnings about what the Federal Reserve has been doing and so on, you know, the, they'll, they'll say, okay, yeah, you've convinced me, Murphy, and your other stuff, presentations or writings, that asset prices are way overvalued and blah, blah, blah. Maybe the dollar long-term is in trouble. So, you know, why, why would I want to be in a dollar-denominated asset? Why wouldn't I just go buy gold or Bitcoin if they're, you know, if they're more savvy in terms of computer stuff? So, there, there again, that I think you're right, Jason. The, the mistake they're making is they're, they, they take me to be saying, oh, Nelson Nash says of all the different assets out there, you should invest more in whole life insurance as an asset class rather than real estate or stocks. Or buy. And no, that's not what he's saying. Right. He's not saying invest in life insurance. He's saying, you know, have this be the headquarters, like your money flows through this vehicle, if you will, so that then you're in a much better position to make whatever investment decisions you want to make. So for example, if you are worried about the, you know, I'll speak to a, a U.S. audience primarily. So I say to them, if you're worried about the U.S. dollar crashing sometime in the near future and you want to have a bunch of gold, well, if you've been practicing IBC, your hands aren't tied. No, you have a nice big uh, cash value that you can take a policy loan against and go buy some gold coins. Whereas if you've been putting your money in your 401k, like the gurus say, you wouldn't be able to do that except with a penalty. Right. And so it's not that you know, IBC is closing doors and preventing you from getting into gold if you think that you know, gold that in price inflation is going to blow up. No, you'd be, you'd be glad you had been doing IBC. That'll put you in the position to do it. So, so yeah, there is that disconnect where people, I think, sometimes believe we're just saying you ought to invest more in life insurance, give this thing a shot. Incidentally, the more you learn or the more I learn about whole life insurance as a product, the more I'm like, yeah, this thing is a pretty robust little vehicle, even if you didn't know about IBC. So, you know, it's, it's not that we're saying it's a bad thing, but it's just that you're really, Nelson's saying so much more. It's just taking control of the banking function is what he's talking about. And it just so happens that this dividend paying whole life policy is, or a system of such policies is a really great way or a platform to implement that on. But it's really, it's not about life insurance. It's about, you know, taking control of the banking function. Um, okay. So then back to you, you had asked, you know, were there uh, ways that sometimes people are trying to market or, or get across the virtues of IBC to the public. So part, part of the problem is, and I, you know, I recognize this, why this happens, that there's lots of different organizations with different names and they have to, you know, cause you're trying to sell something and you know, you got to stand out from the crowd. And so I understand it, but then it, it puts someone like me, and I'm sure you guys get these questions too, where someone will say, Oh, I see you're talking about this. You know, I read this thing, this book from this person over here. Is that the same thing? You know, right. it, it typically it's like in the same ballpark, but it, it's, you know, the, so there's this problem of, you know, am, am I going to be now endorsing everyone who writes on this stuff? Well, I can't because I don't know what, you know, I'm not going to be responsible. So the, the function of what we were doing with the Nelson Nash Institute is to try to provide uh, a standard and just to say, look, we're not saying other people who do this are wrong, but we're just saying, you know, this is the kind of thing we're controlling our message and trying to give good information to the public about how this works. So, for example, I mean, this is pretty basic stuff, but since you asked, I mean, 
some in some acquisitions, people um, will describe this as like, oh, you're setting up your bank and then you're going to make a deposit and, you know, this year and then you're taking this set and then you're going to borrow money out of your bank and go buy a car and then you're going to repay, pay yourself. And so that language, I think, if you, the, I mean, the people aren't trying to deliberately mislead, I think, but in some cases, the novice, you know, person from the public hearing that kind of talk might not realize that, wait a minute, I'm buying a life insurance policy. So clearly, right. you know, you got to be sure they get that you're buying a life insurance, but we use banking in the generic sense of managing cash flows. It's not literally or legally a depository institution, obviously. Right. Um, when you're borrowing money, typically what that you know means is you're taking out a policy loan with your cash surrender value as the collateral. You're not taking anything out of the policy. It's, I think it's more useful to think of it as your policy is over here chugging along like it always was. And then next to it, your the insurance company is giving you a loan side by side, you know, that has a lien now on that policy that's still chugging along. Right. That's a much safer way. Just like if you took out a home equity loan on your house, it's not that all of us, you know, you didn't knock out the dining room in your home. Your house is still <laughs> right. It still makes sense to say what's the market price of my house? You know, the, the value you know, if the real estate market's going up, your house keeps going up in value. But Did you guys feel the breeze coming through the dining room? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but the, you know, the mortgage you have at the bank against it is a lien against that, right? But it's not that in any way you literally took something out of your house, even though people might metaphorically or loosely say, oh, yeah, we, we you know, to refinance these debts over here, you know, we, we took out some of, the, some of the equity in our home and did that. And you know what the person means by that, but strictly speaking, the house is still sitting there. It's worth whatever it is if you sold it. The right. fact that there's a bank that has a lien against it doesn't affect the market price of your house. It just means how much you'd have net if you decided to sell it. So that's really a better way to think about what's going on with uh, you know borrowing against your policy. Uh, the last thing I'll mention, then I'll, you know if you guys want to prod me, we can go further into some of this stuff or different ones. But it's I've been concerned sometimes the way it's presented to the public is they'll say, hey, you know, there's different ways of buying you know a car or something, and depending on the presentation or the you know the way to try to get the person's interest it might come off like the person saying you've got your money working in the life insurance policy and then you can take it and go buy a car with it too. And it's doing two things at once. And it might look like it, it gets free money when, well, no, if you borrow against the life insurance policy, you know, there is a, there is an interest rate that the life insurance company charges you. So that's right. still you know, a good thing to do. And that thing, you know, that's the whole essence of IBC is you're buying stuff by, you know, with, with your own money in a sense, rather than, going to a total third party outsider and borrowing there. But again, some of the expositions I think might lead people, the public to misunderstand. And then if someone who is a critic showed them, well, no, but you know, keep them, you know, keep account of the fact that you got this loan now that's rolling over with interest. You know, I'm, I'm concerned some people might've thought that that or not realized that was the deal. Yeah. Uh, we, we, yeah. Well, I guess one, one last thing too is, um, there is a confusion the public sometimes has about like looking at reading illustrations. And I think some people believe if you were to die, you get the death benefit and the cash value. Right. And because of that misunderstanding, some critics then say, Oh no, no, the life insurance company keeps your cash value. Ha ha. You know, and it, so when you understand what the cash value is, that's a complete, you know, non sequitur. That's that last analogy here. just going back to the house thing is, you know, that would be like saying if some if you were paying off your thirty year mortgage 
and then finally made the last payment and you said, okay, and, the, and let's say your house is worth 300,000. And so then the, the bank teller says, okay, your mortgage is totally paid off. The house is yours free and clear. Here's the deed. And you're like, great. And where's my check for 300,000? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, well, yeah, because my, no. my CPA just told me, I, I checked this morning and said, now I have 300,000 in equity in my house. And so, yeah, here's the deed. Okay. Cause I paid the, the loan off the, you know, the mortgage off, but I want you to give me my equity too. I mean, the person was like, no, no. When the accountant said you were building equity in your house, they meant the market value and then the lien against it was shrinking. So the equity, so that's kind of what the, I mean, again, it's not a perfect analogy, but that's your growing cash value is reflecting the fact that in a sense, it's like the, the lien against your policy shrinking. So you're just getting more of that, you know, it's, it's anticipating that future death benefit. All right, so a lot of complications in there, but I'm saying the idea, someone saying the life insurance company keeps your cash value and only gives you the death benefit when you die, that would be as goofy as saying the bank keeps your equity and only gives you the deed to your house when you pay the mortgage off. But yet, <laughs> because people don't really get what's going on with cash value, that's a more abstract thing than you know how much do you owe the bank on your house. That's why that fallacy sometimes uh, can, can survive. Well, I think that this is a testament to why you know, uh, the Nelson Nash Institute, the authorized infinite banking practitioner program, the importance of the general public, people who are listening to this podcast, to make sure that if you're exploring this process, that you get in touch with uh, an experienced authorized infinite banking practitioner with the Nelson Nash Institute, because if that practitioner is staying in tune with everything that's being communicated forward, from uh, professionals like Bob, from, from Carlos Lara, from a number of experienced practitioners who know how to deliver this message uh, properly to the general public, then you're, you're in a much better position to implement it properly because there are, there are ways to do this improperly and far too many to discuss in one episode of a podcast. But Bob, would, would you be kind enough just to share the, the uh, what gave rise to the Nelson Nash Institute and maybe share with our listeners, um, you know, the importance of working with a, a good practitioner. And also just to tie into that, you know, mm -hmm. Nelson was uh, a passionate Austrian, uh, studied Austrian economics for over 50, I think it was almost, almost 60 years by the, the time that he passed here. And so it was critically uh, integral to him that someone like yourself, who was an Austrian economist that had a, a, a really strong ties to that Austrian community and we're actively promoting the mindsets uh, around uh, uh, personal financial um, accountability through the Austrian mechanics was involved in this, this methodology and able to kind of take that out to a wider marketplace. So maybe also tie in just, you know, Nelson's thoughts on the Austrian school and, and why that was so integral to him. Sure. Um, before I forget on that, yeah, Nelson used to say that, you know, we'd be presenting to at conferences and whatnot or you know events and he would say uh something along the lines of i've been studying austrian economics for 57 years longer than bob murphy has been alive and then i would get <laughs> a microphone and say not only have you has nelson known austrian economics longer than i've been alive my dad didn't even like girls by the time you know when nelson was <laughs> so it's really back um so uh, let me also mention too before i forget the train of thought that just to emphasize reiterate what you guys and i know you you guys, especially in your operations, are really good about, you know, working with clients and educating them and just, you know, making sure, hey, we're not even going to go down this path until we know you've read the material. Because I'm still amazed. I'll get emails from people 
saying, hey, yeah, Bob, can, I, can you explain? Like I had I some from the other guy, day, some guy emailed me and was, you know, saying, yeah, I've been, I have two IBC policies and I'm wondering, uh, I see someone else over here who was not part of our organization, has a thing online about you can augment these things like with a term writer and a PUA. It was, it was pretty basic. And I was like, well, gee, you got to go read our book, The Case for IBC. Yeah, we spell it out there. He goes, yeah, yeah, I have the book. And it, it, was, it was stuff like that where, you know, I hadn't been directly working with the guy. And I don't know, you know, he, I think he probably got some other life insurance person who wasn't out of our program maybe to set those initial policies up because obviously our people would have, you know, talked about those different features. But my point just being that, you know, just because like I've had people who listen to the podcast and then ask me the really basic question. So it's just showing repetition. You know, this, this stuff is difficult. It took me a while for to absorb it. I'm always still learning, you know, as, as you guys, I'm sure would attest every time we get together with other people affiliated with the Institute, everybody learns from each other. So this is clearly, you know, stuff that's constantly evolving. And so, yeah, sometimes I, I forget that people out there in the general public, if they're not even, you know, constantly immersed in this, they might miss something. And, and so it's, it's good to be, to you know, have repetition. Um, as far as the, you know, how the Institute get formed. So real quickly, the, the backstory was, I went uh, down to Birmingham eventually when, you know, Carlos introduced me to the like book and then, and then uh, David Stearns, who was running the IBC think tank had me come down as a guest speaker, just in my capacity as an, as an Austrian economist, you know, give an update on the economy or something. And that's where I saw for the first time, I saw a portion of Nelson's seminar for the public. And then I saw the, you know, the IBC think tank. Um, and then I, as I, as I mentioned, Carlson and I wrote a book called How Privatized Banking Really Works, which tried to sort of unite the Austrian school, its, its views on money and banking, the business cycle with Nelson's views on using you know, life insurance policies to, to become your own banker and, and just show the, the affinity between those two things. And so Carlson and I then were going around getting invited by uh, financial professionals to give talks to you know, local groups they would assemble of either their clients or prospects. And, you know, so we'd be up there saying what I still think, you know, very correct things, but then we'd go get on a plane and go back home and we'd realize, you know, presumably the reason this person hired us to come out here is that's going to make the people he's talking to and who some of whom he got to show up at this event, they're probably more willing now to go ahead and pull the trigger on whatever they've been discussing. And so since we didn't, you know, in the beginning, we knew everybody personally, and we could rely on Nelson and David to just, you know, they say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's a good guy. But we realized at some point, you know, this is, we're going to have people we don't know asking us, and how do, we, how do we deal with that? And so eventually the solution we came up with was, you know, the, the Nelson Nash Institute and the, the authorized IBC practitioner training program so that, you know, we, people go through, they watch the videos, they read the manual, they take a test, and then only – we, we for so when we're pointing the public to people, it's the graduates of our program. So we can say we know these people have you know passed the test in terms of just quizzing them on how would Nelson Nash say you should design policies, and they also sign an agreement with us that anybody from the public that we're funneling to them through our channels, if the you know they say we want a Nelson Nash or an IBC policy, it's got to be a dividend-paying whole life policy. Yeah. Because I do know because you asked me before, Jason, that some I know there are some people out there who are trying to do IBC with different types of insurance policies. And that was something that Nelson was really against. And I think with good reason. Um, so, and then Richard, so you asked about the Austrian connection. So yeah, Nelson had always been a, a big fan of the Austrian school of economics. 
Nelson was very passionate about, you know, his belief in the free market economy and was very skeptical of government intervention. And so that, that dovetailed nicely with, you know, the, the, the IBC view of sort of seceding from this existing system and, you know, just taking care of your own finances yourself. So there, there is that great symmetry there that as the federal reserve and the banking wall street or your guys Bay street nexus is, uh, you know, continuing to inflate and do all, do all sorts of damage that here's this conservative, you know, independent vehicle that you can use to be sort of free yourself from the tentacles of this system that kind of you know, ensnares people. So that all, you know, fits together. And like I say, the thing that really crystallized it was when Carlos was the one to point out that it's not just that, you know, Nelson likes the Austrians and IBC is great, but that literally each household or business owner that implements IBC is one fewer person now contributing to the problem. Because in the Austrian story of what causes the business cycle, it's the banking system inflates the money supply and that pushes down interest rates artificially low. And that, that's what sets off the, the unsustainable boom. So the fewer people that are participating in take, getting loans from commercial banks, that minimizes the problem. And, and that's why it's so integral and important that the, the, the institutions that are we're working with to set up these policies through their participating accounts are a non-inflationary oriented system versus in the commercial banking sector, deposit taking commercial banks where they have the fractional reserve capacity. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, what you said is perfectly fine. Let me just paraphrase. Um, so it's commercial banks right now, you know, in the U S Canada, Europe, major, uh, industrialized economies, the way they work, they engage in what's called fractional reserve banking. And so, as I'm sure your viewers all know, if you go and you know, you have a hundred dollars in currency, you know, pieces of paper and you deposit it into your commercial bank checking account, you're, you know, your ATM balance, your electronic balance, if you check it, you know, on the ATM or on your computer or something, goes up by $100. So you think, I have $100 more in my account now. But the bank doesn't keep that all physically in the vault. They, of course, can lend a bunch of that out. And so the person, that, let's say they lend 90 of it out. So if they lend 90 out to somebody else, well, that person now thinks he's got 90 extra dollars than he had before he took out the loan, right? He's, he, can, he can look at it. I got it right here in my hand. Yeah. And so because of that, there's a genuine sense in which the bank through that transaction or that behavior just increased the amount of dollars in Canada by 90. And so the point is a life insurance company, if instead you put a hundred dollars into your uh, life insurance policies and then, you know, they, and then someone else wants to borrow it, it's, it's not nearly, uh, it, it's not the same process, right? The, the life insurance company needs to have the money to be able to, to give it to someone else. And the, in the community at large, people don't accept claims on the life insurance company the way they accept claims on banks. And that, that's really the central thing, is that the, the reason banks, commercial banks, can get away with this and it's so distortionary is because claims on banks are treated by the community as largely being equivalent to actual money. So if you go into the grocery store and the bill at the register is $50, you can pay with actual currency or you can take your card and swipe it. And what that is is saying, you know, I, the, my bank owes me $300 because I have 300 in my checking account. And now it's only going to owe me 250 and it'll owe you 50 of it instead. 
that's really what's happening when you swipe the thing. It's the, who the bank owes that money to. Now some of it gets diverted to the grocery store. But that's literally not the same thing as them having a $50 bill, right? It's just they have a claim technically on that bank, but they're willing to accept that at par because you know they, they view the bank as being good for it. So that's really the, the issue, and that's why if the banks expand loans, in a sense, the community has more money now and that can push up prices. Whereas life insurance companies, uh, it's, it's not that you can just go into the grocery store and, and say, okay, well, right now the life insurance company says I have $100,000 in my cash value, but let me just swipe this card and now I'll have 99950 and you can have fifty. Like, they'll say, what are you talking about? No, that's, that's, not, you know, that's not a valid form of payment here is what they would say. They wouldn't even know what you were talking about. So because of that, that's why life insurance policy loans are not the same thing as money and why when you take out a loan you know to buy a new car you take out a policy loan that's not inflating the number of dollars in canada in the same way that a commercial bank if it grants you a loan to go buy a car is inflating the number of dollars in canada that is that was such a great example to walk through cool analogy yeah really really good and you gotta do that think tank next year that's really cool you know bob one of the things that we get asked uh, especially with people who uh connect with us by listening to your podcast uh that you know that you and carlos do one of the things that people want to know occasionally is so what is your view on the economy presently uh we just are, of course are experiencing a lot of um upheaval in the markets because of the the uh, coronavirus and these are things that are not exposing policy owners to to danger but what are you seeing in the banking sector that's transpired since the last financial crisis? What are the dangers there that people need to be aware of? Well, sure. So that's a broad question. Let me just give some answers and you know, we can take this whatever direction you guys want. Um, so as you know, I've been warning that I think asset prices. So I, I have a U.S. focus because that's where I live and I have more, you know, the data is at my fingertips more, but I think, a lot of what I would say qualitatively would apply to Canada and um, many European countries as well, that since the financial crisis of 2008, the U.S. Federal Reserve and other major central banks, you know, their response was just to pump in more money. And, then, and, and not just generically, but they were also even buying assets, so-called toxic mortgage or toxic assets, the mortgage-backed securities and so on. And so that really distorted markets. Like firms that had made really bad decisions during the housing bubble years should have been allowed to fail, and that would have been their punishment. And it's not, not just because like we're school marms and we want to punish the naughty children, but because that's, that's how a market economy is supposed to work, right? That you, know, you, you, you leave it open so speculative entrepreneurs, if they see the potential for a big gain, they can take a risk. But if it blows up in their face, they need to suffer the consequences. Otherwise, that's going to encourage irresponsible risk taking that, you know, that's the way you balance risk and, and uh, reward and risk. Okay. So the, you know, that was a problem and that we, I think, uh, you know, set the world economy, the major economies up for another crash. And so I've been, and especially with the yield curve inversion that happened last August, um, you know, that's a standard signal. That's not just an Austrian thing. Like, you, you know, many commentators agree that since world war two, every time the yield curve has inverted the way it did, a, a recession has followed within, you know, 18 months, let's say. So, but based on that, I had thought, you know, I began that presentation, you guys saw the thing thing saying, I thought a recession was going to start this summer. 
And then, you know, that typically means stock prices start falling beforehand as investors see that coming. So the fact that we're having this big drop, so as we're recording this, we just had in the U.S. market the worst week since 2008. I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's down like 13% in a week. And so, you know, that's, I was expecting things like that anyway. So I think part of it is the coronavirus sort of gave traders an excuse to sell, right? In other words, I think that this, and a lot of people are saying, geez, this seems like a really big sell-off just because of the, the you know, virus and the, the impact it might have on production and, you know, supply chains. And I would agree with that, that I think what happens when you're in a bubble, the higher it gets, more and more people start saying, okay, this is unsustainable, but it's the kind of thing like, well, yeah, but you don't want to miss the gains if it keeps going up, right? So the, you know, the definition of a bubble or when does the bubble end? It ends when it ends. You know, once it starts falling, then everyone's going to say, yeah, what were we thinking? And, and that's totally what happened with the housing market. I don't know how bad it was in Canada, but in the United States, certainly, like people on financial shows like CNBC and whatever, some, somebody would mention that, hey, the, the market, housing market seems overvalued. I think it's going to be a sharp correction. And they would literally be laughed at. They weren't just saying, no, 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 we think you're right. They would laugh at the guy. And what he was saying ended up being totally correct. Yep. So. I think that's a situation with um, equity price. Also with you treasuries, you know, being the, the yields being so low, even though under the Obama administration and Trump administrations, they're just piling on the debt, you know, on the level that the U S hasn't seen since world war II. And the fact this is happening in peacetime and now with a decent economy is just mind boggling. So I think there's a lot of fundamentals showing why U S markets in particular, but also the Canadian market, I think by extension, um, it was very fragile and vulnerable to a big drop. And like you s said, Jason, so you know, this, this is all the more reason for people who are considering IBC to you know, <laughs> accelerate their consideration. So it, to be clear, you know, IBC makes sense whether the future looks great or horrifying. You should always become your own banker. That's never a bad idea. But the, if, if the future is bleak, and especially if you're somebody who's right now plowing everything into conventional equity markets because you've been told, oh yeah, the growers just say buy and hold, don't time the market, you can't know when something's coming. Well, there's a growing number of people that are saying that this market is really fundamentally overvalued and you know maybe they're wrong, but I, I think their arguments make a lot of sense. And so in that environment in particular, it would definitely make sense, uh, I think, to really begin IBC aggressively if you're considering it. So while this massive drop just happened that you identified, and again, you know, there's there's correlation to what's going on with the coronavirus here presently at the time of this recording, and it, it's, it is having that huge impact on the markets. There's other things impacting it as you identified. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, you know, from an, from an economist perspective with someone who is, say, practicing and implementing the IBC uh, concept, utilizing the vehicle, as you identified, using dividend paying whole life, Talk a little bit about the insulation that they have in relationship to those markets and why they're receiving some of those, that insulated risk component relative to those huge market drops, that volatility that we're seeing in the typical marketplace. Okay, sure. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things uh, I think, Jason, you had asked me originally, you know, what, what kind of stuff's in the case for IBC. So yeah, that's one of the things we covered in there that Nelson didn't explicitly address in his book was just to say, you know, well, how safe are these life insurance companies? You know, you're, you're in all other regs, you're worried about how the economy is going to crash. Okay, so if I get a bunch of my wealth and, and cash value life insurance, and then the, the, all the life insurance companies go bust, right? So obviously, 
you know, if the earth opens up and, and buildings are falling in and whatever, the meteor strike, you, I can't rule out extreme scenarios, but in terms of just pretty bad financial crashes, life ins- the life insurance sector is remarkably robust. And, you know, the, the famous historical analogies or illustrations of that, that in the 30s, again, I'm, I'm speaking for the U.S. experience, the Canadian system, by the way, you guys didn't have systematic commercial bank failures among other reasons. And what people like Milton Friedman would say is because you, your government allowed for what's called branch, branch banking, excuse me, a lot of syllables there. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U S they had a lot of prohibitions on that. So it was like, you know, the, the local banks servicing farmers in one area, they couldn't be linked in terms of, you know, bank branches that were seven States away. And so that's why like, if there was a bad harvest, all the banks, you know, that had mortgages based on those farms in that region might go down. And so that was part of the reason that during the 1930s in the U.S. you had thousands of banks fail. But, um, you know, because our system was more vulnerable because of silly government regulations on what the commercial banks could do. But in any event, you saw, like I say, thousands of commercial banks went down in the early 30s and people turned to their life insurance policies and, you know, they, they were made whole there. So that's you know, just an example showing in the real world when there's a massive catastrophe financially, the life insurance companies were more resilient, not, not just compared to like Wall Street stocks, but even compared to the banking system. Um, beyond that, I mean, in the case for IBC, we just show the, the asset distribution. So what, what ends up happening is when you send your premium payments into the life insurance company, of course, they don't just put it in a vault as, as currency. They go and buy assets with it, you know, and those grow over time. And that's how they you know, match their liabilities uh, to their assets to make sure when people die, they can make the death benefit claims. And that, that growing portfolio of assets is also the means with which they can afford to then, you know, have growing cash surrender values to all the, the policyholders who have those types of policies in force. So the, the question then is, okay, in a, in a bad economy, you know, what, what kind of assets the life insurance companies have? And they typically have pretty safe stuff. Right, and we have the specifics, uh, at least as of the latest numbers when we publish the book in, in the case for IBC. But it's a lot of fixed income things, you know, fairly conservative bonds or even some other assets that are still fairly conservative. So it's, again, a matter of degree, but certainly it depends what you're comparing it to. Um, but the life insurance sector is pretty robust and, the, and the, the people making those investments are fairly conservative. I mean, the fundamental thing is, life insurance companies, they want to be boring, right? You're, you're not, <laughs> that's the virtue, right? You're not investing in life insurance to get that great quarterly return in the prospective. You know what I'm saying? That that's, that's what you invest in a hedge fund for. Life insurance is supposed to be boring. The, the whole point is they're saying, you know, that their business model is to say, you give us premium payments and you can just relax and know that if you happen to die next week, you know, your estate or your widow or whatever is getting this big check. You don't have to worry about, oh, gee, did we invest in the right thing? You know, that, that's, so that's the idea. So they, they're, by design, they're very conservative because they're not, again, they're not trying to impress investors with a high rate of return in terms of their asset portfolio. Well, I, I would also, I would add to that and say that uh, our belief is that life insurance companies in particular, you know, mutual life carriers are some of the most financially solvent institutions on the globe. Mm-hmm. And Nelson would would share that your money must reside somewhere. And when when someone is looking at 
investing money in stocks. And Nelson would share that, you know, the, the stock broker or the analyst would have an opinion on whether you should buy, hold, sell, pray. And the, the actuary is referencing data based on millions of pre-screened insured lives. And he would ask a question to help you rethink your thinking. He would ask, who do you think has the better data? <laughs> and so when, when you can store capital inside of uh, a life insurance company and you have a unilateral binding contract and 100% of the risk is shifted to the insurance company away from the policy holder and the insurance company can't encroach on the value of that contract because they don't own it. They're only administering it and you're shielding capital from tax risk and investment risk and market risk and liquidity risk and the list goes on and on. How much capital do you want residing there? Yeah. You know, as much as possible, I, I would argue. Because when, mar um, when markets cha change and shift, and they do, they always do. Right. It doesn't matter if it's what, what the market is. It's the bond market, it's the real estate market, it's the stock market, it's the, it's the precious metals marketplace. Any of those, it doesn't make a difference. W opportunities are going to present themselves. And opportunities look different, as our friend Ryan Gregg says, yeah. to those who are undercapitalized, don't have access to liquidity and control over a large pool of financial value and capital. Right. And those that are overcapitalized, they have access to a large pile of financial value and capital. Well, and you, you assess opportunity differently when you have ready access capital. Mm -hmm. But opportunity will most certainly track you down. Um, Bob, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add to... Uh, and again, we're, we're emphasizing uh, the, the case for IBC, but uh, the, the book titled How Privatized Banking Really Works is also available uh, from, from our bookstore. Uh, these reading materials, they will provide you with an abundance of clarity on this process. And it, it goes without saying to have Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, is really the, uh, the foundation, I guess, if you will, uh, you know, on this process as he developed it and founded it. And he would always ask us a question, how long do you think a skyscraper would stand on a weak foundation? <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think what we really, really want to express to our listeners is that uh, we're going to include in our show notes uh, a variety of different methods that you can tune into and read and listen to some of the material that Bob and uh, Carlos Lara put out there for the general public. And all of it is valuable. It's incredible. There's some unbelievable content there. I reference it frequently. I tune into Bob's uh, podcasts. I, I love them. I think they're fantastic. Not only is he a, a, a ridiculously smart individual, he's also quite entertaining. And uh, if you ever have the chance to watch Bob perform in karaoke, you uh, have uh, you have an incredible opportunity. I'm wondering well. we, why we didn't do that this <laughs> past thing. Tank, you know. Um, now I think it's because uh, I'm too old. But yeah, I was in bed by like nine o'clock on one of the nights. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, with that in mind, uh, to close out our show, uh, you know, I think, Jason, I'd like to maybe have you uh, walk Bob through our final question, and uh, we'll, we'll capture his interesting take on, on that. Yeah, uh, thank you, Richard. And, and Bob, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. We'd love to have you back, and we just know that our listeners are going to love it. Please rate, review this episode, and uh, share it with others who you think would benefit from the gift of the knowledge that's been uh, communicated here today. And we always end our podcast with uh, a specific question, but we preface it with that, you know, not all heroes wear capes. 
And so you might not think of yourself as a hero per se, Bob, but every time you create value for other people, you're, you're benefiting them and making life easier or better for them in some way. And so our question to you is, who do you want to be a hero to? Well, that's a great question. And I appreciate all the kind things you guys said there. Uh, I, what I try to do, you know, I was, I was looking, cause I, I do a lot of different things and I was trying to go through like, what, what is the common element in it? What I really try to do is explain things to people so that they can really understand it. So it's not even that I'm trying to get them to agree with whatever my take on it is, but I know there's a lot of complicated things, you know, certainly my backgrounds in economics and, you know, the financial sector, life insurance and so on. So that stuff that might've taken me a while to learn. And then finally like, Oh, when it clicks and then I realize that, okay, now I see it really clearly. And then I try to figure out how can I save other people time? Like how can I get them to this clarity that it took me two years to get to? Is there a way I can come up with an easier way to explain it so that they don't have to go through and read all the stuff I just did? Like, can I get them, you know, to that understanding more quickly? So that that's what I try to do for people just to, give them clarity and to save them time because I know not everybody has the time to devote to reading, you know, Federal Reserve minutes and so forth. <laughs> well, on that note, Bob, thank you again so much. We uh, were very grateful to you and uh, thank you for committing some of your time from your busy schedule to join us today. And we do look forward to having you back uh, again real soon. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure. Thanks for all you do. All right. See you, Bob. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Excellent. Bob, that was awesome. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks. And uh, respecting the use of your time, we know that you have another commitment to get to. So have a terrific weekend and uh, we'll let you know when the show is ready to go live and we'll send you a link to all the show notes and everything as well. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, Bob. Take care. All right. So long. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Without Bay Street podcast, where your wealth matters. Be sure to check out our social media channels for more great content. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and be sure to rate the show. We definitely appreciate it. And don't forget to share this episode with someone you care about. Join us on the next episode where we continue to uncover the financial tools, strategies, and the mindsets that maximize your wealth.